So, all the really smart guys, you know, the guys with the letters behind their names, those guys, it's like some of you guys, they tell us what we already know. Um, even unbelievers get this right. That you and I need to be loved. Would you agree? Um, we all have the same basic, primary, compelling, visceral need to love and be loved. Um, it's how God wired us. It's how we work. I don't know that many of us, some better than others, are highly accomplished at this. Um, we tend to get in our own way a lot in how to truly love another human being as we are called to uh, through the words of Jesus. I know that it's a process that we learn. It's been true, and as I've already claimed to be, and as you already know, I'm an old man, and I like being an old man because I've been around the block a few times, and uh, I can tell all you young people what's coming. You know, uh, Some of you listen, some of you don't. But someone said that it takes a lifetime to say, I love you. And I think that's right. <laughs> I think it's right. You know, the words are easy, right? Real love is not simply in the words. Real love is in the deeds, man. It's in that mundane stuff. It's in that hard stuff. In that goofy stuff. That's where you find out where you're really loved. And if you're loved or not. So I have a question for you. When were you loved the best? I thought about this this week and three things came to my mind. I'll share them with you briefly. I remember, believe it or not, I remember something that happened to me when I was four years old. Um, I fell over an old vaporizer. I don't know if you guys know what a vaporizer is. It, it, it creates steam so you can breathe. And they just used to have these, it was just like a pot of hot water, right? And I fell over it, and I burned, I got third degree burns on my left side, and I remember screaming and writhing in pain, and I remember my dad driving me to the hospital, my mom was holding me, and I remember her soothing me. I remember this. I, I don't remember the pain, but I, I remember her soothing me. I remember the look in her face, and I remember that she hurt more than I did. I remember that. I remember that maternal love that, she showed me. And another one was my dad. My dad um, was a prominent man in our community. Uh, he, was, he lived at a very high standard. He was a deacon in the church. And I did something as a teenager. I know none of you ever did anything bad as a teenager. Um, I did something as a teenager that I knew would not only anger him, it would deeply hurt him. And I still remember the day I stood before him and he did not say one word to me. He didn't have to. I already knew what the deal was. And he just embraced me. I mean, my dad taught me about grace that day. And I've never forgotten it. You know, that paternal love. And then there was a woman named Karen. Right? We met in church. She came to my Bible study. She'd been stalking me for a while. <laughs> Don't tell her I said, it's on tape, it's on tape. I'll have to edit that. And I finally thought, I'll just ask her out. She's stalking me. She's coming to my Bible class. And, uh, and uh, 
we went on our first date. It was it was really cool. I told my best friend, I said, it's the best first date I've ever been on, man. It was really awesome. And we went on a second date. There was no kissing on the first date. We went on the second date. I think that's my rule. That's kind of my standard rule. Um, and I was talking to her, and she just, bam, she kissed me. Like, bam, right? I don't recommend this. But I was toast. It was over. It was over. I mean, it was over. And uh, so that's romantic love, right? Romantic love. So probably most of you have stories like this. Maternal, paternal, and romantic. But what I want to say to you, and you already know what I'm going to say, while these human loves are a great blessing, they are nothing compared to the love of Jesus Christ for His own. They, by comparison, it's a great blessing to have these kinds of loves in your life, but by comparison, they are not even in the same universe as the love that Jesus Christ has for His own. So, I guess it's a huge coincidence that what we need the most, God is. What does the Bible tell us? God is what? God is love. You think that's a coincidence that what you need most, God is? You think that's a coincidence? You think that's the random outcome of some evolutionary process? You need what God is. That is no coincidence. That is no coincidence. Augustine, I think he was from Milano. Am I right? Great church father, uh, 5th century. He said, God made us for Himself and our hearts are restless until we rest in Him. Right? God made us for Himself. It's always Colossians 1.16. We were made by Him and for Him. We were made by Jesus Christ and for Jesus Christ. And, and what we need is who He is. What we need is who He is. Yeah. That's how He made us. Maternal, paternal, and romantic love are profound but they are a faint foreshadowing of how Jesus Christ loves His sheep. And this is what we've been talking about since we've got into chapter 10 of the Gospel of John. So the question is this, when will you love the best? Well, it's John chapter 10. Okay? Jesus says, I love my sheep, I know my sheep, I call my sheep, I lay my life down for my sheep. You will never be loved any better than that. Those of you who are Christians tonight, you've never been loved better than that. You never will be loved better than that. God laid down His life to redeem your unworthy soul. So let's set the stage so you remember where we are. We do have a few guests tonight. We've come through John chapter 9. Jesus heals the man born blind. The Pharisees attack the man and Jesus. And um, 
there always is a controversy when the Pharisees get involved and Jesus is there. The Pharisees put the man out of the synagogue. Jesus comes to him and finds him and ministers to him. Jesus indicts the Pharisees as we get into John chapter 10. He calls them false shepherds. He says that I am the door. What did that mean? Does anybody remember what it means when Jesus says I am the door? He is the one that came through the door and He is the door. He comes through the Old Testament prophecies, Old Testament promise, the Old Testament symbolism of of, uh, the temple. He is the door and He came through the door. He is Messiah. Jesus will say in John 14.6, a verse that I've repeated to you several times as we've gone through the Gospel of John, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No man comes to the Father but by Me. He's the one that all the Old Testament is pointing at. We talked about this last week. He's the fulfillment. He is Messiah. He's the promised one. He's the shepherd of Israel we'll talk about in just a few minutes. And that's what all of this imagery is is about. He is the shepherd, capital S. He is the shepherd of Israel. Uh, Psalm 80, verse 1. We'll touch on that in just a minute. So verse 10 of John 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and that they might have it abundantly. This is strong language, but this is what dead religion always does. And all religion is dead. Okay? Even pseudo-Christian religion, it's dead. It's trusting in orthodoxy and self-righteousness, right? It's dead. It does no one any good. In fact, well, I think I have a good quote here, if, if my memory serves. Yes. Famous 17th century English minister Matthew, Matthew Henry said it like this, the deceiver of souls, which religion is a deceiver of souls, right? All religion is a deceiver of souls. These Pharisees knew the Old Testament perfectly. But you remember what Jesus said to them. Let me read it to you real quick from Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You travel the earth to make a convert, and when you convert them, you make them twice the son of hell that you are. This is what religion does. It takes men and women to hell. This is what it does. This is why God is always speaking against it. Christianity... Um, and Judaism, before it went apostate, it's never about religious performance. What is it about? You guys know what real Christianity is about. I say it all the time. What is it? It's coming to church when it's not too inconvenient. No, that's not it. What is it? It's a relationship. Bam. Relationship. It's always that. And he's highlighting that, isn't he? My sheep, I know my sheep. My sheep know my voice. And my sheep follow me. It's always relational. Biblical Christianity is relational. Now, pseudo-Christianity is all about, about, about a bunch of other garbage. Biblical Christianity is always relational. Matthew Henry, I don't think I finished the quote, the deceiver of souls, they murder souls. Beloved, that's true. That's just true. That's just true. We can see it not only in Old Testament, New Testament, we see it in the history of the church. 
So the God of the Bible says, I'm bringing life, life abundant. Now, if you read my book, you know I, I went off on this. and uh, So I could go a long time on this, but I, I won't do it. But let me just tell you, there's a thousand references to life in the Bible. I'm going to give you a couple of brief examples. The breath of life, tree of life, path of life, fountain of life, springs of life, way of life, well of life, statutes of life, the bread of life, the word of life, the book of life, the promise of life, the crown of life, the river of water of life. There's all this imagery. God is offering you life. If you're outside of Christ, you are dead. You are dead. And you actually know it. Your soul is dead. There is no joy or life in your soul. So you're out in the world trying to gin up a little excitement, you know, a little uh, momentum. But as I've told you many times, this is another good reason about, this is another good thing about being an old guy. You know, I found out a long time ago I wasn't interesting enough to entertain myself for 82 years. I just wasn't interesting enough, and you're not either. Some of you are more interesting than me, but you're going to get really bored with yourself if your life is all about you. You're going to get really bored really quick. Jesus says, I came to give you abundant life. I am the resurrection and the life, He'll say in John 11. You remember how the Gospel started. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and in Him was what? Life! Life, beloved. Life, it's what Jesus offers to all who would repent and believe. And this is not just inhaling and exhaling, right? <laughs> A lot of people inhaling and exhaling. And they're just spiritually dead. They don't know their Maker. They don't know why He made them. They don't know what their purpose is. They don't know what their destiny is. They don't know. They just don't know. But the words here, Jesus uses, there's a number of words for, as, as Elaine could tell you and as Liana could tell you, there's a number of words that could be used in the Greek for the word life. There's, there's bios, which is just, you know, inhaling and exhaling. Then there's zoe. And this is the word that, that Jesus used here, zoe. Vitality, right? He says, I've come to give you vitality. There's some other synonyms. Um, I've come to give you fullness and vigor. This is what Jesus has come to do. Uh, life in the Spirit. Bountiful, copious, inexhaustible, lavish, exuberant life. I looked at the Greek lexicon and it says a more than necessary kind of life. Don't you love that? A more than necessary kind of life. I've never understood what that means, but I like the way it sounds. That's the kind of life that a Creator God would give to His creatures. I want to just read a brief excerpt from C.S. Lewis' Mere Christianity. And I want you to listen to this because this is a perfect metaphor. Okay? A perfect metaphor. Now listen. Lewis writes, A man who changed from merely being a bios kind of life to having a zoe kind of life would have gone through as big a change as a statue which changed from being a carved stone to being a real man. Okay? This is conversion. <laughs> Listen to what he says. And that is precisely what Christianity is about. The world is a great sculptor's shop we are statues and the rumor going around is that some of us are going to come to life. 
Amen? It's Christianity, beloved. It's Christianity, a perfect analogy. The true lover and follower of Jesus is that Zoe man and that Zoe woman. We are alive, born from above, born again by the power of our Creator and Redeemer. Abundant life only happens in Christ. There's that sobering text. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 18. Men and women outside of Jesus, Paul says, they are excluded from the life of God. That's what hell is. Excluded from the life. Can you imagine being eternally dead? Eternally consciously dead. It is in large measure what hell is. In 1 Timothy 6.12, Paul challenged every true, true believer, and I, I say this to you some, uh, he challenges every true believer to lay hold. Lay hold of the eternal life to which you've been called. So, I'll stop and just challenge you. Have you consciously done that? Have you consciously uh, laid hold of the eternal life that God has given you? Are you laying hold of it? Are you living it? Are you still, you know, compromising? Are you still conforming to the ways of the world? Are you laying hold to a supernatural kind of life? Right? You're not going to settle anymore. You're not too easily pleased as Lewis talks about. I will not settle. I will not settle. I'm going to lay hold of this life that God has made available to me and has called me into. Verse 11 there's a Greek construction thing here Elaine and Liana could, could help you out with, I guess. It says, of course the English says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The Greek construction is, I am the shepherd, the good one. <laughs> okay? I am the shepherd, the good one. Because he's contrasting himself to the Pharisees who are false shepherds and hirelings. You heard the text. They are false Jesus says, I am the shepherd, the good one. We've seen this in the Gospel of John. Um, and you, you may not catch the imagery here, but we've seen so far in the Gospel of John that Jesus is greater than Moses. He is greater than Abraham. And as he talks about himself being the capital S shepherd, he is greater than David. He is greater than all the great men of the Old Testament. He is greater. Right? He is, as He said a chapter or two ago, I am, as I, we said last week, it's inevitable that Jesus would compare Himself or call Himself a shepherd. This is uh, the picture or the word picture of God in the Old Testament. Last week we said that uh, from Ezekiel 34, God says, Behold, I will search for My sheep and I will seek them out. Okay, This is what the shepherd does. The shepherd comes to find his sheep and to protect them. Jesus is the door, as we talked about earlier. He came through the Old Testament promises, prophecies, and symbolism of the temple. He is not a shepherd. He is the shepherd. This is clearly what Jesus Christ is saying. The Greek word here translated good, 
does not mean good in a moral sense. He's not saying I'm a, I'm a morally good person. He's saying, the, the Greek word is uh, kalos, okay? It's the word that English, we use in English to build the, the word kaleidoscope, okay? Jesus is saying, I'm the beautiful shepherd. I'm the perfect shepherd. I'm the able shepherd. I'm the exceptional shepherd. It's not just about Him being good. I am excellent. I am magnificent. I am praiseworthy. I am preeminent is what Jesus is saying. And so every literate Jew, every biblically literate Jew, knew what He was saying. Psalm 80, verse 1. Let me read it to you. The psalmist says, O give ear, capital S, shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned above the cherubim, shine forth. This is no normal shepherd. He is enthroned above the cherubim. Stir up your power and come to save us, O God. Restore us and cause your face to shine upon us and we will be saved. Jesus is the great saving shepherd of Psalm 80, verse 1. How many times have we seen it in John? He just keeps fulfilling the prophecies. As I told you last week, about 300 plus Old Testament prophecies are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And what does the shepherd do? Tell me from the text. What does the shepherd do? He what? He lays down his life for you. He lays down his life. So if you're a Christian, you already know you've never been loved better than this. You may have had a great mom and a great dad. Some of you may not have had that blessing. And you may know what true romantic love is. But what I want to say to you is, this is nothing. This is nothing compared to the love that the Father, Son, and Spirit have for you as one of the sheep. Of course, the Lord will continue to expound on what a sheep is as we continue through the text. The sacrificial divine love of Jesus. Let me just read to you from John chapter 4, a couple of excerpts. By this the love of God was manifested in us that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation. Who knows what propitiation means? You're supposed to know this word. Pretty good. He takes, he takes sin and wrath and judgment and hell off of us. This is what it means technically, what propitiation means. He takes it off of us. And He puts it on Himself. He, takes it off, he removes it from us. Okay, He's our propitiation. He removes all of that from us. He is uh, the propitiation for our sin. We love Him because, oh, He first loved us. Right? We, we know this is true. Men don't seek for, seek for God. No man has ever sought for God. Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3. You can do your own research there. Verses 12-13. He who is a hireling and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, beholds the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hireling and he is not concerned about the sheep. Now, Again, Jesus is talking about the religious leaders here. Uh, they are merely religious professionals. And this is what we see by and large in 
much of the Christian, so-called Christian community in, in, in the world. Uh, you have a lot of religious professionals. Guys who do it because it's their job. It's just their job. It's what they do. It's their profession. Some of it are in it for the renown. Some of it are in it for the respect, for the power, for the status, for the position. And as I often remind you, the prosperity heretics are in it because they want your money. They could care less about your health, wealth, and prosperity. They're only concerned about their health, wealth, and prosperity. So the prosperity heretics are fleecing the flock. They are hirelings. They are thieves and robbers. They are false shepherds. So, this comes to my mind a lot. Karen gets tired of hearing me say it. But I was just thinking about this part about these these all of these false teachers. You know, from the you run the gamut from Eastern Orthodox Roman Catholic to, to apostate Protestantism. And I just thought there's going to be so much wrath in pulpits. Can you imagine a man who will stand in a pulpit and misrepresent God and bend the truth about what it says and say it to other men? And women, can you imagine the wrath that will fall on this man? These false prophets? What does Paul call them? Uh, dogs and evil workers? In the Gospel of... Not the Gospel, but the book of... I think it's Philippians. So, yeah. These are perverse men saying perverse things as Paul talks about in Acts chapter 20, verses 14 and 15. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me even as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. It's biblical Christianity. I talked about it a minute ago. It's always relationship. If you do not know Christ, you are not a Christian. I don't care how many denominational things you've done. You are not a Christian if you do not know Him, if you do not hear Him, if you do not love Him, and you do not follow Him. You are not a Christian. This is what Jesus is saying. This is what sheep do. Sheep know me, I know them, and they follow me. We're going to hit it hard again next week. It's just what it is, right? It's just what it is. This is these are not my words, these are red words. These are the words of the Son of God. And so, you, you hold the plumb line up against your own life, right? I, I have to do this myself in my office, you know. So I get paid the big money. I sit in my office and I think about this stuff. But are you a sheep? Hold, hold the plumb line up. Are you a sheep? Are you merely a Christian? You know, playing kind of a religious game because it was, it's cultural, it's traditional, it's, you know, it's my card, it's my free pass out of hell in case there is one. Jesus makes it pretty clear what sheep do. And there's this intimate relationship. It's deep and real and strong and permanent. Did you notice what he says? Even as the Father knows me and I know the Father. This is the kind of relationship that happens between the believer and Jesus. It's Trinitarian strong. It's Trinitarian real. Right? 
Don't blaspheme God calling yourself a Christian and living and thinking and planning and hoping and dreaming like everybody else in the world. Real Christians don't do that. Yeah, we get deceived and we, we have our, our problems. We have our weak seasons. I get it. But the true believer comes out of that. You, you can't walk with the world and walk with Christ. You, you simply can't do it. It's simply impossible. Jesus prays for His sheep in John 17, 21, that they may be one even as You, Father, are in Me and I in You and they also may be in us. This is God's commitment to you. This breathtaking relationship, it's unwarranted, it's unexpected, it's uncalled for, it's unreasonable. But God invites you into the Trinity in one mysterious sense without being sacrilegious in any possible way. And then we act like being a Christian is like, you know, being a member of some social club. And that's as deep as it goes. Well, beloved, if that's what's in your heart and your mind, then you haven't begun to understand what it means to be a Christian. The relationship the true believer has with God is not abstract. This word, you guys know this, this word know, it doesn't mean intellectual knowledge. It doesn't mean He's aware of you. It means what? It, again, is relational It's not about knowledge. It's about relationship. It's about familiarity. It's about understanding. It's about intimacy. It's about the conversation that never stops. This is what prayer is to me. Prayer is just a conversation every day. Right? The conversation is happening this is the demarcation between heaven and hell. John 17.3 This is eternal life that they may know you. The relational intimacy. Matthew 7.23 Jesus says, Depart from Me. I don't know who you are. There's no relational intimacy here. Of course I know who you are. I made you. But I don't know who you are. It's always relational, beloved. So I want to just do a review five times. Five times. The Good Shepherd is going to say in this text... I'm laying my life down. Verse 11, verse 15, verse 17, verse 18, twice he references it. I lay my life down. When, have you, when were you loved the best? Right here. John chapter 10. You'll never be loved like this. Ever. God bleeds out for you? <laughs> and this is religious? This is religion? Can't be religion. Can't be religion. Paul told the Ephesians, chapter 5, verse 2, Jesus gave Himself for us. He didn't forego just a little bit of glory and you know, tolerate some temporal inconveniences. He didn't ransom, him, ransom us with His wealth. He didn't negotiate our, uh, or barter a deal for us. He died for us. He died for us. Verse 16, Jesus says, And I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they shall hear My voice, and they shall become one flock with one shepherd. So we touched on this last week. Who, who's this other fold? 
He's talking to the Jews. Who's the other fold? The Gentiles. You are. I don't think we have any Jewish brethren in here. Um, you are. You are the other fold. The Gentiles is what he's talking about. Jesus says, I will create one flock out of the Jewish and Gentile fold. Again, this is another fulfillment of prophecy. Some people, I get this question a lot, some people really struggle with the Jew and Gentile thing, right? So I'm just going to read you a couple of verses. This is more or less parenthetical. Um, so you'll have a, maybe some better sense about it. God says, Galatians 3.29, if you belong to Christ, then you are what? You are a Jew. You are son of Abraham is what He says. You are of Abraham's offspring, heir to the promise. All true believers are, in a sense, spiritually speaking, sons of Abraham. You are a Jew. Okay? All believers in the spiritual sense, in the ultimate sense. Romans 2 and Romans 9, just some excerpts. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, neither is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the Spirit. If you've been circumcised, if you're born again, you're a son of, or daughter of Abraham. It's, it's the clear teaching of the Bible. I, I just don't want us to get confused about the Jew and Gentile thing. We make too much of it, in my view. Paul continues, For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. That is that uh, pardon me, that is it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, it is the children of promise. It's not about ethnicity, it's about regeneration. So in the mind of God, it's always just been one fold. It's never not been one fold. It's always been one fold. I listened to a guy on YouTube uh, this last week talking about the chosen people. You know, he was a Jew and he, he, just, he kept hammering that and hammering that and hammering that. And I thought to myself, well, so am I. If you read the New Testament, you realize that every true believer is what? Tell me. Chosen by God. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. For the Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Okay, sort out the Jew and Gentile thing for yourself if you need to, but ultimately it's about the elect. It's about the elect, beloved. It's about the elect. This is what we hear in the Word of God. Galatians 3, In Christ there is neither what? Jew nor Gentile. God doesn't see it. He just sees His sheep. He just sees His sheep. I like verse 16 there. Notice, He has them before He calls them. How does that work? Well, Jesus is going to talk more about this next week and I'll wait uh, till then to to develop that. I'll just leave that with you. He has them before He calls them. We'll talk more about it next week as Jesus says to the Pharisees that they do not believe because they are not His sheep. Verse 17, For this reason, the Father loves Me because I lay My life down and that I may take it up again. Obviously, the Father and the Son, they have this, this eternal and infinite love relationship going on, but something happens in the incarnation, this submission that, that the Son has to the Father, and He lays His life down uh, for the sheep to redeem uh, the sheep and to redeem a people for the glory of the name of God. 
Jesus says, My Father loves me for this. He loves me for you know, an infinite number of reasons, but My Father loves me for this. Saving these, you know, willful and rebellious sheep from themselves. Verse 18, No one has taken it away from Me, but I lay it down on My own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from My Father. This is the breath of the love of Jesus for His own. It is free. It's just free love. Right? It's, just, it's a free offer. In fact, Hebrews 12 tells us, Hebrews 12.2 12, tells us that for the joy set before Him, He endured the cross. This is how much... Yeah, it's great. You've got, you got a mother that loves you and a father that loves you. And you got... Man, you, you understand about romantic love? That's awesome, man. That's great. But you don't know nothing yet about real love if you're not rejoicing and celebrating in the love of God for you in Christ. You don't really know. We don't know... Human love cannot compare with divine love, beloved. It just simply is not, on the, it's not in the same universe as divine love. Jesus says, I lay it down. It wasn't Judas. It wasn't the Pharisees. It wasn't Herod. It wasn't Pilate. It wasn't the Romans. Jesus said, I do it. I lay it down. I've ordained this. I've orchestrated this. Because I love my sheep. I love my Father and I love my sheep. You guys know the great text. Yeah, Christmas is, Christmas is just... Christmas is about Easter. <laughs> he was born to die. He was born to die because He loves His sheep. You guys know what it says in Acts chapter 2, I think it is. Jesus was delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. God is saving His people through the sacrifice of His Son. It's breathtaking. It's breathtaking. So the cross was not about Jesus' lack of power. It was about the depth of His love for His people. You remember Peter, Peter drew a sword in the garden. He was going to protect the Lord. And the Lord says, My hour has come, Peter. No more of this, right? No more of this. So... He dies for the sheep. He loves the sheep. And He unites the sheep. He brings all of the sheep, Jew and Gentile, into one fold. So He lays down His life, but the story doesn't end there with a dead shepherd. You know how the story ends. Jesus says, I have authority to take My life up again. He lived for the sheep. He died for the sheep. He, he came out of the grave for the sheep. He's at the right hand of God interceding for the sheep. He will return to gather His sheep. He will gather them to Himself for a billion eternities in the new heaven and new earth. You have never been loved like this. You've never been loved like this. It just shows you how hard-hearted and depraved mankind is that they can turn their backs on this God. Right? that the vast majority of humankind just turn their back on this God. This God who loves like this. So all the really smart guys tell us what we already know. We need to be loved. Oh, what a coincidence. God is love. Yeah, it's not a coincidence. 
And I'm just going to read from Philippians and Isaiah 53, Philippians 2, just so as I close, just so we get some sense of how much God has loved us. Philippians 2, Jesus Christ emptied Himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men and being found in the appearance as a man. He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross a few excerpts from Isaiah 53. Surely our griefs He bore and our sorrows He carried. He was stricken, smitten, and afflicted, pierced through for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. By His scourging we are healed. The Lord caused our iniquity to fall on Him. He was oppressed and afflicted and the Lord was pleased to crush Him, putting Him to grief. If He would render Himself a guilt offering, He poured uh, and He poured Himself out to death. When he says, I'm going to lay my life down from the sheep, it's not bios, it's not zoe. It's another Greek word that means my soul. Jesus Christ, the second member of the Trinity, gave all of Himself away to redeem His people. His soul. All that He was was sacrifice. So maternal love, paternal love, romantic love, yeah, it's all really, really great. <laughs> but if you don't know the love of Christ, you don't know what love is. And I couldn't help but think, as I was finishing up, I was thinking, Hebrews 2.3 was ringing in my ears. Hebrews 2.3. How shall anyone escape if we neglect so great a love, so great a salvation? How shall anyone escape? No one will escape! You know, people ask me, as you might suspect in my line of work, well, why doesn't God reveal Himself? What? He has. He has. To, any, to, to a greater degree than any reasonable man would ever ask, He has revealed Himself. He has. Did you notice here at the end, verse 18, how did Jesus, this is a good, a good point for us, how did Jesus demonstrate His great love for the Father? Do you see it right there at the end of verse 18? Someone tell me. How did Jesus demonstrate His great love for the Father? It's right there at the end of verse 18. Yes. He did what His Father commanded. So, that's perfect for us because it's what sheep do, right? And so, you don't need to ask me if you're a Christian. I get this question sometimes. It's fine. You want to ask me, but I'll never answer it. I have no idea if you're a Christian. I have no idea. But sheep follow. I know that. If I got to watch your life for a little while, I could make an educated guess. Sheep follow. It's what they do. Jesus obeyed the commandment of His Father and sheep obey the commandment of the Son. It's really simple. It's really simple. So real Christians, real Christians, we hear Jesus, we know Jesus, we love Jesus, we follow Jesus. It's as simple as that. You know, forget all the denominational stuff. This is real Christianity. I hear Him, I know Him. I love Him. I follow Him. Basta. That's it.
That's it. I'll close with John 14, 21. My, one of my favorite verses, as you well know. Jesus says, He who has my commandments and keeps them, He is the one who goes to church regularly. No. He is the one who loves me. Okay? <laughs> it's not hard. He's the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him and I will disclose myself to him. So, it just keeps getting more beautiful. It's going to be more beautiful next week. I invite you to return and, and let's study it together.